0: Would you turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew once again, this time chapter 7. What do you think about when you hear someone called a Pharisee? They use it in a derisive term, uh, manner. You Pharisee or saying of someone, he's a Pharisee. What do you think about? What are the mental or emotional pictures you have in your mind and your heart? probably, if you're like me, someone that's judgmental, someone that's self-righteous, someone that's hypocritical, not really walking the talk. Those are the ideas that we have in our minds when we derisively refer to someone as being like a Pharisee. Well, in the passage this morning, our Lord Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, exposes something about the scribes and exposes something about the Pharisees which was obvious to most in that day but only Jesus would address it. He would be the only one that would really point it out. And their problem, the Pharisees' problem, the scribes' problem, they were hypocritical judges of others. They were hypocritical judges of others. And this attitude shows up all throughout the gospels like for example that time when jesus told the story of two men that went up into the temple to pray one was a tax collector and one was a pharisee well this is how the pharisee prayed he said god i thank you that i'm not like other men i am not an extortioner i'm not unjust i'm not an adulterer i'm not even like this tax collector I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. That was his attitude about himself and about others. And Jesus later said of him, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is a man in this parable that exalted himself. And as a result, felt it necessary to put down others. The Pharisee, prototypical. Then there's the story of the man born blind in John's Gospel. This man was speaking about Jesus after he got healed. And he said, if this man, speaking of Jesus, were not of God, he could do nothing. Well, the Pharisees heard what he said. And they said, you were completely born in sins. And you're teaching us? That was their attitude. Is that others, other than them, were born completely in sins. The inference was, they were not. They felt themselves superior. Then there's the other example in John's Gospel in chapter 7. When the officers and the chief priests came to Jesus and said of Jesus, no one ever spoke like this man. No one. We've never seen anything like it. And then the Pharisees responded, have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? And then speaking about every single person in Jerusalem, the crowd but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. That was their attitude. This crowd doesn't know the law. They're accursed of God. These people, they're completely born in sins. They have no right to teach us, and so on and so forth. And so as a background that we see Jesus teaching his disciples in Matthew chapter 7. He's teaching them so that we would not be like that. And he starts out by using these words that have become very familiar to us. Verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Well, let's stop there and look a little bit as to what Jesus was talking about here. When he said, judge not, lest you be not judged, he's using the word, the Greek word, krino, which means to mentally decide something about someone else. It means to try them in your mind. It means to condemn them in your mind. It means to punish them already in your mind. To make a mental decision about someone else. Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged. Now, we want to, of course, flesh this out and discover what does this mean and how do we apply this? What's, what's the application for us? Well, there are two that I'd, I'd point out to us. First of all, don't act as a judge over another person's life. And here's the reason. We are not the ones who decide if a person goes to heaven or hell. I hope that we all understand that. <laughs> Uh, first of all, we wouldn't have the criteria necessary to make such a decision, and we'd be very bad at it. And then secondly, it's just way too much pressure. (laughs) Only God can handle such a role. And thirdly, it's Jesus' job to do such a thing. He's the only one that has the capacity and all the information necessary to decide if a person goes to heaven or hell. So we don't act as judge over a person's life. Caveat, though. We can, determine, we can share with people the criteria by which God will decide whether they go to heaven or hell, but we're not the ones that decide it. Do you see the difference? We share with them the criteria by which God has decided whether a person will go to heaven or hell, but we're not the ones that decide ultimately whether an individual does go to heaven or hell. James said in chapter 4 verse 12, there's one lawgiver. Who is able to save and destroy? Who are you to judge one another? Jesus said, As the Father has life in himself, So he has granted uh, the Son to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment also. So when we say, Don't act as a judge over a person's life, We mean we're not the ones who decide If a person goes to heaven or hell. Also, it, it, it can mean... That we're not like Job's counselors, who believed that they understood the reason for Job's suffering. And I think it's one of the cruelest sections of Scripture: this this poor, suffering servant of God, Job, a righteous man, who did nothing to to uh, bring on the catastrophe and the suffering in his life, losing his children and his possessions and his health and and all of those things that happened to him. And then his friends came, and they were great counselors as long as they sat near Job and empathized with him. But as soon as they opened their mouths and began to say something, they ceased to be good counselors. Because their opinion was that Job was suffering because of the sin that he had committed. And they were wrong. God corrected them at the end of the book. They were wrong about that. And so we're not to be like that. We're not to be like Job's counselors who believe that we have the definitive answer for what every circumstance is that is coming into a person's life. God help us that we not have that attitude. Well, secondly, in terms of application, what does it mean, judge not lest you be judged? Don't attempt to decide other people's motives. Now we're getting into another area that I think is equally important. I cannot know what a person's motives are. The only thing I can know is what a person says or what a person does. But I can't know what's going on inside of the deep recesses that provoke what they say or what they do. So I'm free. I don't have to judge a person's motives. I don't have to decide. And how do I know that I don't have the ability to judge another person's motives? Well, Jeremiah, the Lord spoke to Jeremiah and said, the heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then the passage went on to say, I, the Lord, search the heart and the minds, and I give to everyone according to their deeds. So the Lord's the one that searches the heart. He's the one that searches the minds. He's the one that knows the motives. We don't. So we don't judge another person's motives. The great Bible commentator Matthew Henry of the 16 and 1700s, said, we must not judge by speaking evil of anyone. We must not judge by despising others or setting them aside. We must not judge by drawing conclusions about people based upon a single act in their lives. We must not judge by drawing conclusions about people based upon a supposed knowledge of their motives. And I think he's nailed it in his discussion. Well, in our generation, Matthew 7, one has become the most well-known and oft-quoted verse in the Bible. Usually because the view is that anyone that has anything to say definitively about what is right or what is wrong is judging. You can't say that that activity is wrong and that that activity is right. Who are you to make such a statement? Because the view is... There is no such thing as absolute truth. Absolute truth cannot be known. So therefore you cannot absolutely say that something is absolutely true or absolutely false. But it's easy to refute that kind of thinking. When someone says there's no such thing as absolute truth, they have just made an absolute truth claim. Their absolute truth claim is that there's no such thing as absolute truth. And so therefore you can simply ask them, are you absolutely sure that your absolute claim that there's no absolute truth is true? And of course they can't because uh, there is absolute truth and they've just refuted themselves. Well, Jesus said, for what judgment you judge, you will be judged in verse 2. So in very many ways we decide what standard By what standard do we want others to judge others? And just quickly, a little personal example from my father's life. My dad was probably the least judgmental person I've ever met. And I don't know anyone who judged him. He sort of set the tone for the way he was in his latter years. He didn't judge others, and I don't know of anyone who judged him. And then Jesus goes on in the passage in verse 3, and he says, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove the speck from your brother's eye, or uh, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye so notice here jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't ever remove the speck from our brother's eye he's not prohibiting helping one another with flaws which is what a speck is a speck in someone's eye a piece of sawdust perhaps a little splinter of wood a little speck in someone's eye might be a flaw that's in their life Jesus isn't saying never correct anyone, never rebuke anyone, never exhort anyone, never try to help anyone with their weaknesses and flaws. He's not saying that. What he is saying is that before we do that, we must first remove the plank or the log out of our own eye. We've got to do that hard work first. And why is that? Well, it's important because, as Paul said in Romans two one, oftentimes when we judge others and try to help them, unless we've pulled the the log or the beam out of our own eye, then the thing that we notice about others is the very thing that we're doing ourselves. We tend to notice our own weaknesses when they show up in others unless we've done the work of pulling beams and logs out of our own eye first. Only then can we see clearly, as Jesus says here, to do the work of pulling the speck out of our brother's eye. Classic case in the Old Testament, Nathan and David, Nathan the prophet, of course, uh, was told by the Lord about David's sin. And he went and confronted David about his sin, a sin that David had kept secret for about a year, and uh, told him about his sin by giving him a story about a sin that was just like the one David had committed, but about which David would be very angry. He told him a story, and David pronounced a judgment. The man is guilty, he deserves to die, and he has to repay fourfold. And then Nathan the prophet said, you are the man. Well, what was the sin that David had committed? He had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and had covered up the crime by having Bathsheba's husband set at the forefront of the battle in a battle that he was assured of certain death. And so Uriah was killed in battle, and David was behind it. It was his fault. David drove that boat, and so Uriah was killed. Well, the story was about a man who was very wealthy, and there was a neighbor who had nothing, and the neighbor had one little ewe lamb, and that was his prized possession, like a pet to him, like a daughter to him. And the rich man had all kinds of flocks, and he had friends come and visit, and he wanted, of course, to feed them and be hospitable, and so he took that poor man's ewe lamb instead of a lamb out of his own flock, had it killed, and he fed it to his neighbor. When David heard that story, he said, the man deserves to die for doing such a thing. But in reality, David had done the same thing. By taking Uriah's wife and having Uriah killed in the process. David recognized the sin in the story because it was his own sin. He hadn't first pulled the beam out of his own eye so that he couldn't see clearly to make judgment on the position. Like in this graphic that Mike drew up for us last week. Let me remove that speck in your eye. And there's a beam right there in our own eye. That's what we have to be careful of. Now keep that up. Here's another little thing that we have to be careful of and note. Matthew 7.1 can't be used, or this whole passage that we've just read, can't be used to escape rebuke or correction. In other words, somebody comes to me and says, you know, Bill... I've noticed that you drive too fast on Highway 17. And I think you're not being a good witness, and you've got that little bumper sticker on the back that says, Jesus is the truth, and I think that you're a bad witness because of the way you drive. I can't say to that person, Brother, pull the beam out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck out of my eye. How fast do you drive? And I can't fire it back at him. As a way to deflect from the criticism. But isn't that oftentimes what we do? We jump on the person who is wanting to correct us, even if it's rightly done and well deserved. And we use passages like this to defend and deflect ourselves away from the thing that they're saying to us. Can't do that, that's against the rules. We have to be humble as much as we can ourselves and determine the truthfulness of what's being said to us and take it to prayer and ask the Lord to show us how we should handle that correction amen Amen. All right. well Jesus is talking about in this whole section this morning he's talking about spiritual discernment so here's another example of it in verse 6 be discerning as you share God's truth he says do not give what is holy to the dogs nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. In Jesus' day, according to the rabbis, One can't take the meat of a sacrifice, which is holy, redeem it, and then turn around and use it to feed the dogs. So this was a common and well understood saying in that day. But looking at the passage, don't give what is holy to the dogs, don't cast your pearls before the swine. Dogs and swine were unclean animals as far as the religious system of the Jews is concerned. Dogs, unclean animals, swine, unclean animals. So, you don't give what is clean, what is holy, to that which is unclean. That's the basic idea. In other words, if someone doesn't cherish the truth, if someone doesn't value the truth that we've shared, then don't share it. Don't try to share it with them if you absolutely are convinced that there is a predisposition against the truth. Why? Because they'll only trash the precious truth that you're giving to them. That's the statement. Are there examples of this in the scripture? Yes, there are. When Jesus sent out his disciples to preach, two by two, he gave them this directive. He said, whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake the dust off of your feet. In other words, don't stay there if you're unwelcome and they don't want to hear you, they don't want what you have to say, they don't want this precious truth, the holy thing that you're sharing with them. Then don't try to force the issue. Simply leave that community, shake the dust off, your, off your feet, and go somewhere else where they are open and appreciative of the truth. There's another great example in the book of Acts in the 13th chapter when they were at Antioch in the area of uh, Galatia. And on the first Sabbath day, Paul and Barnabas and the missionary team preached the gospel with great effectiveness. And there were many who were interested. And many Gentiles were even interested in hearing the truth. And then a week went by and the next Sabbath day, The whole city, which was made up mostly of Gentiles, non-Jews, the whole city came to hear the word of God from Barnabas and from Paul. But the Jews, who the week before, many of them had rejected the truth, when they saw, saw the multitude of Gentiles that were gathered there to hear Paul and Barnabas, well, they were filled with envy. And so they began to oppose the things that Paul was saying. And opposing the things that Paul was saying, this is what Paul and Barnabas said to them. They grew bold, and I'm reading from the passage. And they said to the envious Jews who were starting to resist the gospel being preached by Paul and Barnabas, they said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Remember? Remember? The gospel is the power of God to salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Paul said it was necessary that we preach the gospel to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, we're going to turn to the Gentiles. So what did they do? They didn't stay there and try to insistently coerce the Jews into believing. They said, listen, you don't appreciate these pearls that we're giving you. You don't appreciate the truth that God himself has sent us to proclaim to you. Therefore, we're not going to stay in this situation. We're going to turn to the Gentiles and minister to those who want what we have to say. And that's the proper application of this verse, don't give that which is holy to the dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine, lest they turn and trample them under their feet. That's the important application. Now, here's another danger, because all of these little things that Jesus says here are dangerous to us, because we have a flesh and we have a mind which has all kinds of insidious little plans, and we can turn these things and twist them and make them so that they don't mean what they really do mean. Now here's the danger with this one. missionary goes into an area, and he's been told by friends, he's been told by relatives, he's been told by other missionaries who've been there in the past, the ground is really hard here. It's probably not a good idea for you to go and preach the gospel. Don't go into that part of town and share, because if you go into that part of town and share, they're going to reject what you have to say. So don't go there and don't do that. And so the missionary excludes himself from that part of town and excludes himself from any possible ministry to those people. That would be a wrong application of this passage. Because we don't know what a person's reaction is going to be until we share with that person. We don't know how people group is going to respond to the message until we give them a chance to hear it and so we can't use this passage don't give that which is holy to the dogs and apply it to situations that we don't have knowledge of because if we did that we would be guilty of Matthew 7.1 we would have been judging and we might be judged because of that we have prejudged a response before they've had a chance to hear Uh, I think we have to assume that God has people everywhere. That he wants to draw out from the masses to believe in himself. I think we have to assume that. Just like when Paul was in Corinth and he was afraid because it was a violent city, a very carnal city. And the Lord came to him and spoke to him at night and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. I have many people here in this city. No one's going to lay a hand on you to harm you. Well, if you just showed up in Corinth and got off the boat and started to hang around, you'd see a pretty dangerous situation. and You wouldn't conclude that this is a place that's really open to the gospel message and it might cause you to get on the boat and go someplace else before you even had a chance to speak. And that would be a mistake because there was a great work of God that he did in that city of Corinth because of an obedient apostle. Ben is going to be heading over to the west side with a team of people from this church to start a fellowship over there sometime after March. And it's a good thing. And the great thing about what Ben is doing and the others that are going to be going with him is that they're assuming that there are people there that want to hear the gospel and that want to come to Christ and that they're going to be effective. And I think that's the right approach to take. It would be easy to say, oh, no, the West Siders, man, they don't want to hear anything about the truth of the gospel. You know, over here on the East Side, now, we're real open. But on the West Side, nada. Well, that's not true. How can you know unless there's been an attempt made? And so the application of the thing uh, is important for us to pay attention to. Well, a lot of times it's hard to decide, isn't it? about how to press or not to press on a situation? Well, we need wisdom, don't we? Verse 7 tells us that we should find what we need from our Father in heaven. Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. For what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And I think the very first application of this section that we've just read is in reference to chapter, of verse 6. I mean, This is a hard thing. Don't give that which is holy to dogs. Don't cast your pearls before swine. I need wisdom. I need spiritual discernment. I need discretion to know how the Lord would lead and direct my life. And so where do I get it? Well, I get it by asking the Lord. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. That's the first layer of application here, I think, that is important for us. But just look at the attitude that we're to have of God from this passage of Scripture. This is a great passage of Scripture to tell us the heart of our Father in heaven. Contrasting the heart of our Father in heaven with human fathers. Human fathers know how to give good gifts to their own children. Human fathers know how to give bread to a son who asks for it rather than giving him a stone. A fish rather than giving him a serpent? We know how to do the basic kindnesses of life. Well, how much more it's one of those contrasting things, how much more will our heavenly Father give the good things to those who ask him? So that the, the perception here or the attitude of God that is communicated is that our Father in heaven, he has a listening ear. Ask and it will be given to you. He has a heart to provide. Seek and you will find. He has a will to reveal and to open up opportunities. Knock and the door will be open to you. So that if you and I ask, it will be given to us. If we seek, we will find. If we knock, the door will be open to us. That's the promise. Isn't this wonderful? I mean, this pretty much summarizes all that we need from God. What's our biggest problem in prayer? we don't ask we don't pray that's our biggest problem and perhaps our second biggest problem is we don't ask enough and perhaps our third biggest problem is that when we do ask sometimes we ask selfishly those are all problems not asking enough is a problem Asking selfishly, James 4 tells us, is a problem. Because if I'm only thinking about myself, the Lord says, well, I'm not interested in that prayer. You're just thinking about yourself. You're not thinking about the greater glory of God. But then not asking at all. That's unfortunate because we've got this Heavenly Father who is so interested in hearing from His kids. You know, I know, I know that there are attitudes like, You know, why pray? God knows what I need anyway. So isn't it a big charade? I mean, he knows the things I need beforehand, and he knows what I need anyway, and so why do I have to go about the process and the routine of prayer when you know it's either going to happen or it's not according to his will? So there's no point in really praying. Well, I think we've missed the point, if that's our attitude about prayer and about God. Because he loves the, the interaction. He loves the connection that is made. And he could have said, okay, over the course of your lifetime, you're going to need $700,332.57. That's how much you're going to need to live until your eyes close and you're done. So, I'm just going to put it in a bank for you. I'm going to let you draw it on it. But because you're sort of unwise in these things, I'm only going to let you draw out a certain amount each time so you can't over-abuse this. But I'm going to give you enough, and so it's yours. And you and I will never have to talk about this again. We'll never have to communicate about it. It's just yours. It's sitting there in the bank, and so you can count on it. But that's it. And I'll see you in heaven. Well, how satisfying would that be to you and me? How satisfying would it be to God? There's no interaction. There's no fellowship. There's no joy of discovery. Wow, look at that. The Lord provided a job for me when it looked like there wasn't any available. Look at that. Somebody sent me a check in the mail when I didn't know that they even knew about this need. Look at that. They gave me a good deal on that car I needed to buy. You know, the excitement and the joy of answered prayer and the process, all that would go away. We wouldn't have any of it. And that wouldn't be a relationship. That wouldn't be fellowship with God. So prayer is this great process that allows us the joy of discovery and growth where we're little children before our Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Father is just loving on us, just paying attention to us. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. What a great picture of God. And so... By the time we get to heaven, because of this practice that we've had over the course of our Christian walks, by the time we get to heaven it's not this huge culture shock to us. Oh, I didn't know you were anything like that. I didn't know you were kind like that. I didn't know you were interested in like that like that, in me. I didn't know you were paying attention. No, no, not a culture shock like that. Not to that degree. Uh, get to heaven and Father, <laughs> it's just been great getting to know you, but now I really know you perfectly. But it's been great getting to know you all these years. Thank you so much for your faithfulness. See, that's the kind of thing that the, the Father is after in his relationship to us, rather than just this, okay, put it all in a bank, draw on it as you need it. I don't want to talk to you, and you don't have to talk to me. That's not what it's like. He loves the interaction. Are you excited about that idea? Okay, good. Find what you need from your Father in Heaven. Persistence in prayer here is encouraged by the fact that our Father has promised to give to us, to enable us to find, to open up doors, to give good things to children who ask Him. And we're going to end today with just one more verse, verse 12. Sort of a summary verse. The golden rule. It rules. It's awesome. The golden rule rules. And that's what this verse is. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Uh, this statement by Jesus, is what is called the golden rule. And it's not like happens in our culture, who has the gold rules, it's not like that. It's the golden rule. It's the rule that is golden. It's, it's behind all of the biblical ethic and morality that God has to share with us. It's the core of everything. It's the bottom line of life. And it's really, as Jesus said, the essence of the law and the prophets. He said, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. This is the essence of what the law and the prophets were trying to, was trying to communicate. And the rest of the Bible amplifies this statement and expands it and makes it clear to us. So how do I treat others? This, this is the statement. How to treat others. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, to, to apply this in real life sometimes takes discrimination and discernment. I'll give you an example. It's very current with me right now. I somehow got talked into being the president of our Mobile Home Association. Okay, so there are situations that come up. The parks have rules and, you know, things that everyone, all the residents have signed an agreement to obey these rules. But there are situations that come up where individual residents break the rules. And sometimes it's to the great inconvenience of other residents in the park. And we have a couple of those we're dealing with right now. So as the president, what do I do? I mean, my empathy wants to be kind and gracious and forgiving and let the person off the hook. You don't have to obey the word, the rules. I understand your extenuating circumstances and all of those things. And if I were in your shoes, I would certainly want you to be merciful to me. So do I apply the golden rule that way and say, okay, since I would want you to be merciful to me, if I were in your shoes, I'm going to be merciful to you. And I'm not, I'm not going to let you I'm not going to make you obey the rules. Or do I consider the other 59 residents that own mobile homes in the park and realize that the rules are there so that they can have a park that they want to live in and actually is safe and, and uh, you know, a nice place to live? Do I consider them? Well, if I'm one of those residents, I very much want my president of my association to act decisively with regard to the rules so that I can continue to live in a safe and reasonable environment because that's why I bought into this park. You see the dilemma? Sometimes it takes some discernment and understanding to know how to apply these different situations. But the basic of it is whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. Now, it's also true to say, in commenting on this golden rule, that in almost every case in other world religions and in other philosophies of life, when they attempt to state the golden rule, they usually state it in the negative. And so this is how the golden rule reads for them what you don't want others to do to you don't do to them and so it's stated in the negative but jesus doesn't state it in the negative he states it in the positive positive. and i would propose that stating it in the negative is a much inferior version of the golden rule than is stating it in the positive because i can say well you know i don't want anybody to hit me on the cheek so i won't hit anybody on the cheek well that's good not to hit people on the cheek But that doesn't say anything about my need to actually love that person. I've just avoided hitting you on the cheek. So am I doing my duty? I've just avoided swearing at you. So am I doing my duty? Have I gone beyond that and been kind to you and said things that are affirming and encouraging to you? You see, the golden rule as Jesus gives it to us is a positive thing. Whatever you want men to do to you, however you want to be treated, By others in a gracious, kind, and truthful way, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. As opposed to the negative way of stating stating it what you don't want others to do to you, don't do to them. So, some examples I don't want to be used by people, so I won't use others. I don't want to have anything stolen from me, so I won't steal. I don't want to be criticized, so I won't criticize. I don't want to be lied to, so I won't lie. I don't want to be hated, so I won't hate. Those are all negative, and they're good. I mean, I don't want to hate anybody or any of these things, but it's still stated in the negative. But you put it in the positive. I want to be helped, so I'll help others. I want to be accepted, so I'll accept others. I want to be told the truth, so I'll tell the truth. I want to be comforted, so I'll comfort. See, it's a a way beyond... The negative statement of it to look at it that way. An example in the Old Testament, there's an interesting law in the book of Exodus for Israel. And the law goes like this. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you will surely bring it back to him again. You're out and about and you see the donkey of your enemy or the ox of your enemy just kind of wandering out in the field or out in public places, put a rope around the neck of that beast and take it back to its owner. That's the law. The question would be why should I do this for my enemy if he's an enemy? Because if I owned an ox or a donkey that had gone astray, I would certainly appreciate it if they did that for me. So, what Jesus is teaching is simple, but it's profound. He's saying to us, this is the way I want you to love. This is the way I want you to relate to others. If any situation in life comes up in which you need to relate to others, put yourself in their shoes and think about how you'd want to be treated and then treat them that way. What would happen if every confessing believer in Christ actually lived this way? What would our culture and our world be like? It would be, I would suggest, a a striking improvement over what we have now. Because this is the the golden rule. This rule rules. It's the golden rule. It's the rule that's golden. Now, how does this happen? How does this kind of law get lived out in my life? Well, first of all, by understanding it and realizing that this is this is the ethic that I that I need to learn to live my life by. God help us. And then secondly, relying regularly, daily upon the holy spirit of God to produce it in our lives. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, and I've come back to this a bunch of times. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What is the righteous requirement of the law? Just as you want men to do for you, do also for them. This is the law and the prophets. That's the righteous requirement of the law. So, how is this righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in me? By understanding it, That this is the ethic by which we live. And then secondly, by relying upon the Holy Spirit to make it real in our lives. Moment by moment, day by day. And because we all live in a world that has fallen. And because we all have flesh. And because we all have a devil that opposes us. This is going to be really hard to do. But not impossible. It's going to be a wrestling match within our souls but not impossible because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. It can be done. But that doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it can be done. And it's our duty before God to learn how to do it, to learn how to live this way. Amen? So we'll stop there in our study this morning and next week we'll pick up and perhaps... Uh, finish the rest of the chapter let's pray lord we thank you for this uh, time in the scripture this morning and lord jesus boy you know just in our minds i seeing ourselves sitting on that mountainside with you and having you open your mouth and share these things and we jot them down we write them down feverishly on a piece of paper or a tablet and then we go away and it takes us years To unpack it all and to learn how to apply it and live it Uh, we thank you for how profound your word is lord jesus how profound your truth is no one did ever speak like you no one has no one ever will you're the king of kings and the lord of lords and we would also say to you lord that as we look at your standards we recognize that we are inadequate and we are also not faithful to do it we're we're not perfect people you know our flaws you know how we fail and we thank you for your grace that covers us and strengthens us and forgives us and we also thank you Lord that you're willing to be patient with us and work with us so that we can learn to live this way thank you for that keep these high and lofty standards in our minds, Lord. And then point us constantly to the Holy Spirit by whom we can live this way. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And as we're continuing to pray, just a word of encouragement for anyone here this morning who hasn't ever met Jesus as his Savior or as your Lord, and you don't know if your sins are forgiven. You hear these things and they're high and lofty standards, and you don't know if your sins are forgiven. You don't know if if you have actually received the forgiveness that God has offered through Jesus. Well, you can be sure this morning if you accept Him into your life and you open your heart to Jesus. God sent His Son to die on a cross so that we can be forgiven. He paid the penalty for the law that was broken that we broke. His death on the cross paid the penalty for the broken law. And if you believe in him and trust in him, and believe that his death was for you, and that he rose from the dead for you, if you really believe that, the Bible says that you'll be given the gift of eternal life. Is there anyone here this morning that would like to make that commitment for the first time right now? Just raise your hand, and I want to have a word of prayer with you. Anyone this morning, you've never received Christ, but you want to right now. Just raise your hand up high so I can see you, and then we'll have a word of prayer. Anyone this morning? All right. God bless you all. Let's stand together, shall we?